0: The thought of murder often evokes thoughts of the sea, of sailors. What naturally follows thoughts of the sea and murder is the thought of love or sexuality. Welcome to
1: the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language.
0: Carell is a sailor. Maybe it's true. And you love one another
1: more than you'd like to. Today is part of our throwback series will we discuss him Carell starring Brad Davis
0: Okay I did it with Nona but don't start getting any funny ideas I'm no fairy
1: I know that Franco Nero
0: Perhaps love is a den of killers and if this is true will Carell draw me into it? and Jan Moreau You love each other with your beauty. I can't break you up. You'll always find your way back to each other.
1: Directed by Rainer Werner Fassbinder.
0: In some obscure way, Curell understood that love is voluntary. You have to want it.
1: Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Fun fact, listeners, I visited Brest, and well, let's say, I didn't see the seedy side of the French city. It's Galley in Glasgow.
2: Ready to set sail into some extremely choppy waters. It's Devlin in London. You call that a hard It's Patrick in London. Want to shoot dice? It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, you played it
3: so smart. I have 20 quotes here, and they're all equally filthy, so I went with a clean one. Sorry,
1: Patrick. Welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. Brand new episode of the show... Doing something a little bit different, all right? Going into uncharted territories as we kind of move into the hundreds. Um, So, this week, Patrick's choice, a throwback, although I'd like to think that he saw this later in life. We are discussing Quirrell from 1982, directed by Rainer Werner Fassbender. So, Patrick, I think it's probably pertinent that we get straight to the point. What's uh, what's going on? Why'd you put this one? <laughs> <laughs> what, what,
4: whatever do you mean, know um, Firstly, I, I did put this very quick note. I knew you were going to say that. Does this not fall into the erotica series of films for us?
3: I've noted that it could be. It could be confused <laughs> as, a, as an erotic thriller, perhaps. <laughs> oh, did you play bingo with it, Patrick? Because if you get a line on the oh, bingo yeah, board, it's officially
1: bingo. Yeah, it's officially an erotic thriller. Yeah, yeah he's Every right. Every time
4: you see a penis, drink. Um, well, for me, it's a throwback. I think for you guys, it could be maybe a pulling focus, and we can make this episode a bit of that. Um, I don't believe any of you've ever seen it, so I, when we were watching Prisoner Scorpion Forty One, I really appreciated the theatricality and the lighting of the film and it recalled correl for me um i just had this sudden flashback to uh i mean, uh, set the scene it was the year 2007 and uh, i'd set a sail um <laughs> away from you guys to prague to study performance and live in abroad and i did a class called um circulating within the postmodern cinematic image with Professor Raw Rebecca, Um, you know, we, we watched films like Ohassad Balthazar and Vinci and Nandalo, Stalker, Leventurum, Fitzcarraldo, Um, Andre Rublov and Karel. But also, I, my, one of my papers is like a 5,000 word essay comparing two films from the same director. Um, and another film that we watched was The Merchants of Four Seasons, Merchant of Four Seasons, excuse me. Um, by Fess as well <clears throat> and the films always stayed with me um, I was 21 when I saw it and it definitely had like an impression on me that I never forgot it it was always something I remind um, been reminded of here and there and I thought I wrote it down very early on when we were you know you put it down you kind of big Beat manifesto for the podcast and what films you kind of want to hit and this was one it was just when was the right time And now that we're a mature past 100 episodes podcast I thought now's the time to um to ask if you'd seen it and Devlin and I spoke about it very briefly when we are in FOP um, shopping for the avant-garde cinema shall we call it and we, we spoke very briefly about it and it's been a long time I haven't seen this film since 2007 um it's quite cool that family in prague uh have a, like a small cinema screen and you watch it on there but um yeah i, I was very young and not used to kind of a um, let's call it erotica cinema i think the only kind of thing i was really familiar with at the time was breakback mountain and you know fled like, just spitting into his palm that was the 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 the, uh, a mass of my explicit, uh, content and, you know, at the, at the time I remember the, the tutor saying, what, what's Corel's motives? And I just, the room was quiet. I don't think anyone knew what to say. I don't think we all understood the film at all. I, I, I know I didn't. That's why I just said, he wants to fuck his brother. Um, I <laughs> didn't realize it was going to offend the tutor and raise a laugh because obviously it's a deeper, film than that but on the surface that's what I saw and I was always keen to kind of look at it again and try and understand it more and this is what we, we, we are doing right, I want to discuss with you guys and see if you can open up anything else for me and if I can open up anything for you.
1: I do recall Patrick when you came back from Prague actually that um, that your cinematic horizons had opened up but also that you'd you'd obviously had a bit of a transformative time there because you started ordering drinks like a you know, a single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. So you know these things <laughs> you do kind of you know broaden your horizons as you go afield into different cinematic avenues. Little joke there, little reference. There you
4: go. <laughs> I remember ordering Absinthe for you guys and bringing that back certainly. And. A, a bottle of Bekarovka as well. Do, I, I don't know whether I had that with you. but um.
1: Well, I also remember that Staropraman, which now is like, you know, next to Foster's yeah. and, and Carlin, was actually quite exotic. It was like, ooh, they got got Staropraman yeah. on tap. Nice. Good bar. Great beer. Lovely beer.
4: Yeah, interesting time of your life. You know, you like 21 and you watch a film like this. Um, you know, at the time, it was just a list of films from the tutor. We're going to watch these without any real context of why you're going to watch them until you've watched it so frankly no warning i'm watching quite an explicit and uh well explicit in a, in a sexual way especially in language this film it was quite eye-opening to me and almost shocking in a sense um which i think we'll get into and i feel part of the director's
0: uh
2: motive <laughs> our film school was was so kind of focused on on practical filmmaking that we we didn't really get a syllabus of um kind of classics it was something that we sort of found for ourselves um so what's what's odd is that um Fassbinder has always been on that list of big like one of the big uh, for better words the big beasts of world cinema that i've just never dipped into and i always that Uh, Whether that was because his stuff was slightly less available than others, because it it was very fortuitously timed when we were at film school that um, there was two box sets of Werner Herzog films that came out, very affordable DVDs. Between the two of them, you had like, I think it was about 14 or 15 features, which was the bulk of his 70s output and into the early 80s. So that I I got to watch a lot of. Um, But for whatever reason, Fassbinder has always sat on the... Fear eats the soul, which is always the one that gets recommended as I guess the. It's in the Criterion collection. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it was cool when we were in FOP when you picked up the DVD and it's such an arresting kind of cover image and it, it really seemed like it was going to be, um, like an interesting one to watch. And the way you have described it made it seem like it was something that I I should probably see. There's a lot of elements to this which I think um uh, cross over with stuff that I really like in in films, especially at this era. But um, yeah uh we didn't manage to find our fassbinder funko pop in fop unfortunately <laughs> matt had you watched a lot of fassbinder in in film school had you come across him or this film no i'm e- equally clueless um but patrick's story
3: about prague like made me think about some of the tutors that had, had done similar things with us like we sometimes refer to andy willoughby who introduced us at a level film theory to a lot of films that we wouldn't have otherwise seen But me and Joe Mack at um, Leeds Met, uh, the Northern Film School, at this probably two years prior to this, uh, 2005, probably, we had to make friends with a mad Portuguese count who was uh, a tutor at our (laughs) film school. And uh, he was a complete lunatic. I won't mention him by name. I've since blocked him on every social media platform for uh, harassing me. He was fired for texting students uh, sexually and uh Whoa. he uh, he's the one who introduced us to a bunch of stuff um everything from kind of uh, uh the leopard was one that he made us watch um he he, he would break down a lot of um uh, he, he used to refer to my dear troffaut and he'd show us um 400 blows and uh, things like that and so we'd have to really sort of make friends with the tutors to kind of get any kind of film references like this like dev said it was mostly a practical course but thankfully we'd had a bit Mm. of a level um prep before we got there but um yeah no no connection to Fassbinder at all so it was uh, a, a really refreshing experience to to have never heard of the film had never seen anything by the director know nothing of the story and just come in completely cold Uh, the, the, the Galmont logo helped me a little bit because it made me think of Betty Blue, which was an arty French film that, um, popular with students my age and slightly older, I imagine. Uh, there's a famous quote from Spaced about having Betty Blue on their blue bloody walls. I think it is something like that. The Blues blues Brothers, Betty (laughs) Blue. And I think, uh, was Leon Galmont as well, perhaps? I should note that my version had no subtitles on the title cards, so I may need to be clued in oh, on yeah. what was said on those scene dividers. Uh, that's my experience—very little. So I can hand over to Galley. How about you?
1: Yeah, same, Matt. I mean, the only thing I would say is um, I totally agree, totally agree that uh, you know coming in with absolutely no no biases because no understanding, nothing um, is is actually really refreshing. Um, and I, I was, you know, I was happy to do that. Um, but just speaking of like limited experience and as I say, Patrick, you had that incredible opportunity, which, you know, you took uh, to go to Prague because I suppose my cinematic kind of journey has always been done through relatively commercial curation. Does that make sense? You know, like yeah. we've talked about Tarantino introducing us into certain, certain elements where, you know, well, I never would have watched any kind of like Hong Kong films if I hadn't have watched... Or watched true romance and was wondering what Christian Slater was referring to and what they were watching. And I had a similar thing with world cinema as well, where everything was kind of like the what would have been perceived as the best of French cinema, but it would be relatively, you know, current. So like La Hain, well I'll then watch it because, you know, there's a buzz around it. The DVD is in HMV. You do need a guide, is what I'm saying. And if you have got a guide, then wicked. And hopefully we're that guide for you, listeners. <laughs> we'll see. Um, Patrick, for for our listeners, have you got any kind of wider context of Fassbinder, who he was, what he represented, and why he is seen as such an important figure?
4: First thing I think of, just he, he was a bit of a powerhouse force of nature. He, he was... Um... He grew up in the Das New Kino kind of age. You know, we've mentioned Herzog already, um, and Wim Wenders was another example. And he's very much a product of post-war Germany. Um, in you know the the fifties, they kind of renounced war and politics, and their films were these Heimat films. Uh, forgive me, I forgot the translation of Heimat. Is it home films or something? Um, that were quite rural and, and idyllic and about family and, and, you know, they were nice and don't mention the war. But don't mention that. And th- they were those. And th- there was, um, wasn't there some sort of treaty that was signed between these filmmakers that they wanted to make films that were more realistic and, and reality and portray realism which is quite interesting considering the film we're about to talk about. Fascinating, fast minute, he, he worked in um, theatre, largely, when he was younger. I think he wrote like 13 plays, and it was the avant-garde action theatre that he worked at, and he made a lot of friends, and they were a very close-knit community, and that would go throughout his film uh, history as well, where his close-knit community and friends, they would act in all his films, they, they would live together, they would fuck each other. He, you know, he was a very sexual, openly gay man, um, not, not at the beginning, uh, but you know, he, one of his lovers is in Carell, plays Nono, and he's that kind of person, but he, his workload was extraordinary. He'd make three, four films a year and he would, um, fund them by getting the finances for his next film and, using that money to pay for the current film. And he'd go through this endless loop. And often, you know, films he would edit during filming and he'd be writing the next project and he wouldn't sleep. He'd be on cocaine and drugs and drink. The, the, he's the kind of man who'd have a PA on set who would fill up his pint glass with ginger beer and Jim Bean, like constantly and have to keep it full because he'd just keep drinking. And he, he was a workaholic, um... When you consider Carell was shot in 20 days, you know, he was very fast and uh, he had a style that was, he knew what he wanted, even if he didn't share it with everyone else. Just to talk about Carell, when when this film was offered to um, Peckinpah, this film, um, and he, he didn't go for it, and it ended up with Fassbinder, and... He seemed to be a kindred spirit of the writer, Jean Genet. He just had an economy of of work over his years, and he's rumoured to have been found dead at a typewriter with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, with an overdose at like seven, was it? And, you know, it's whether it was suicide or whether it was overdose, accidental. but I I, personally, reading about him, I I like to think it's an accident because I don't think he was finished with the world. I think he had
3: a lot more to say. What was the collective with um uh Lars von Trier
2: called the dogma ninety five manifesto yeah yeah, 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 that
3: was very similar, and I've got Lars von Trier down as one of the only things I could really cling to because i I'm kind of in love with a film called uh Dogville, which was all presented on um it's a painted stage, so you don't actually see any of the buildings, it's kind of a theatrical presentation where it's chalk or or white. Uh, taped or painted lines where the buildings would be and the actors kind of move in and out of them it's got an incredible cast and a really incredible ending and uh, it's probably Nicole Kidman along with Birth I think it's her best best performance and uh, it's got this voiceover that was very similar to to Carell and uh, just an an unnatural kind of environment and and um, and a theatrical sense to it that I that I really liked and that was one way I could kind of hook into this one I don't really know too much about um uh Hertzog either so um mm-hmm. my, my in was kind of from a, coming at it from a slightly Lars von Trier perspective I don't know if anyone got anything similar
4: with Westbender um, and Benders and herzog they had um the Ernehausen agreement which was to get rid of these 50s films and make films that had messages and metaphor for Germany for post war and irony and melodrama, um, sexuality, for truth and reality. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mention it but there was another famous German like filmmaker Douglas Sirk, he went to Hollywood
0: mm-hmm. and
4: he was a massive influence on Fassbinder because he'd watches things with melodrama and he'd find them ironic. He'd find them a way to express things in an ironic way and they were brightly lit and colourful and full of performance and uh, performative and he he liked that he even liked the films of like betty lee and marilyn monroe and found them as performers quite influential on him i guess
2: maybe a lot of people myself kind of included are probably more familiar with douglas sirk from like todd haynes's very uh very open tributes to him especially far from heaven where again you have a, a filmmaker who's using the kind of um, the melodramatic repression of uh, of of women, largely. They were called women's pictures, the Douglas Sirk stuff, and, uh, and mm-hmm. Todd Haynes was also kind of playing with that iconography to also um, I guess investigate what it's like to be uh, gay in America with both that. And I guess Carol as well is, is a more kind of, yeah. Carol's a, a, a more kind of lush and, and uh, um, psychologically rich film, I guess, but that's I guess that's uh, that's an interesting distinction to make because Herzog's films are so also concerned with masculinity and manliness, but often um, this kind of ecstatic uh, attachment of man to nature or man versus nature.
4: Yeah, there's always a, a need to excel and overcome a, an objective and whether that was yeah.
2: man and identity yeah. from a metaphor like a ship going over a hill ship over hill or agira the wrath of god you know like it's all uh uh you know what can we claim what can we conquer mm-hmm. cobra verde as well and um whereas i guess vendors had more of a sort of um wistful um, for everything i've seen of his is kind of like wistful road trip energy to it stuff like alice and the cities mm-hmm. they're they're a lot more grounded and a lot that they've got they have more akin to i think the 70s new hollywood stuff whereas like this was a completely different feel to any of those films that I'd seen. Patrick, would you like
1: to remind us and tell the listeners of the plot for Carell?
4: Carell of Brest, the angel of apocalypse, arrives on board Le Vangier, along with his fellow sailors and Lieutenant Sablon. Brest has got the raunchiest whorehouse in the world, Leferia, run by sex people, Lisanne and her lover, Nono, They say every trick has to throw a dice at the boss if he wants to catch a hook. If you win, you get to have your pick. But if you lose, you have to let the boss not fuck fucking 1st I'm damn sure there's plenty of guys who kind of like losing. Corral goes to Laferia in search of an opium deal and unexpectedly meets his brother, Robert. He also meets corrupt police captain Mario, who turns blind eye. When Corral retrieves the drugs... He kills his accomplice Vic and delivers the opium to Nono, expressing a desire to fuck Nono's partner Lizanne. But Corel deliberately loses the dice roll to allow Nono to sodomize him. Corel is on a journey now, walking around town like a proud erection, garnering affection and attention wherever he goes. When Mario hears that Nono fucked Corel, he pursues and fucks him too after Corel fights with his brother over the situation. In the meantime, an embarrassed builder, Gil, Murders his workmate and tormentor, Theo, and goes into hiding. Roger introduces Carell to Jill, who said he can help him, and soon feels his emotions and affections swell for Jill, the first man Carell kisses on the lips. But Carell betrays Jill, spinning a yarn that leads the murder of Vic to Jill and tells the police where to find him. Carell fucks Nazan in some form of revenge on Robert and destroys her life. He doesn't belong on this earth I think he uses powers on her A Sablon always looking from afar Finds a drunk corel On the brink of a shame From which no man ever rises But only in that shame Will he find his everlasting peace He's conquered, totally conquered And the two embrace Amongst the destruction around them But Corel is left a lonely figure Mazan reading her cards She made a mistake Robert doesn't have a brother at all each man kills the thing he loves Da-da-da.
2: that's very um thorough
3: it's the most explicit one since basic instinct isn't it
2: yeah so patrick you've um uh you said that this this film kind of um startled you a bit when you uh when you watched it for the first time audience Um, members
4: if you you don't know the film that might have startled you that plot synopsis
2: since we've we've already talked about you know first reactions and stuff but we talked about how familiar we are with the film I'm I'm intrigued to see uh what the impact of that film kind of going in cold kind of had on you do you remember like do you remember your kind of like the first 15 minutes after you finished watching it what was kind of running around in your head at the time
0: yeah
4: I I kind of do because there were times in that class where I just, I I don't understand, you know, and I don't think they were explained well enough. It's that that typical thing of a teacher just asking what it is and if you get it wrong, you get it wrong you feel stupid. And I think I did at the time, um, you know, young lad, abroad, abroad broadening my horizons, but still quite naive, especially sexually and of a wider world. and I remember not wanting to get an opinion wrong about it, not wanting to say misinterpret something, or uh, almost embarrassed that I didn't understand the metaphor. So that's what I said on on the basis he wanted to fuck his brother because that's how I read it. And it, it's trying to. I don't remember discussing it with anyone after. I, it might have happened. I just don't remember. And sadly, I couldn't find my paper on it, which I must have got rid of. I was really fascinated to see what I wrote about, you know, it's pretty much 15 years ago to this week, to be honest. Mm. Um, it had been around this time.
1: Well, if we don't have Patrick's, then we we can canvass uh, other members of the panel. I mean, Devlin, uh-huh. what kind of initial reactions? Because as Patrick says, um, mm. and I think we all rightfully recognize, as a plot summary, that is quite an evocative, provocative mm plot summary
2: so that the the plot is 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 obviously as you said that there's there's a lot in there that would be like quite challenging um so i i, I wouldn't say that i was scandalized by it i think what my first reaction was and i did end up watching the film twice in, in the space of a week and uh i guess not to uh, get my sandwiches out of the pail too quickly i found it a very difficult watch but for slightly different reasons than i was expecting i think um but i will say that uh for all of the challenges i found parts of it have continued to haunt me but both times i actually was in the physical act of watching it i found it one of the most difficult films i've ever had to watch and i think not so much because it's quite graphic in nature because i think that that is uh would actually provoked more of a reaction Mm -hmm. um Probably one thing to kind of set up about the 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 way the film is laid out is that it is laden with quite distancing devices. Um, there is a, a voice of God voiceover. There's then a second character who uh, is the lieutenant of the ship who spends most of the time uh, watching and also narrating Corel while recording into a dictaphone these very... Um, Flowery and verbose, kind of peons to his beauty and masculinity. But there's also on screen text which shows up within the film as well. So there are kind of, before you even get to the characters speaking to each other, there are three layers of information being laid on you. And the, especially the Voice of God narrator, is extraordinarily verbose, like really difficult sentence constructions which um, talk in quite metaphysical terms sometimes
0: Carell was frozen by Mario's gaze more than indifferent Mario's gaze and stance were glacial At the same time Carell was struck by the owner's extraordinary strength and the cop's beauty Never before had he experienced true rivalry with what he had faced in these two.
1: I'm going to be really honest and do the thing that I don't normally do because I try and save it for the summary. Your lunchbox. My, 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 hey, yeah, I've, I've actually got my lunchbox here and I've opened it. I, I'm, I'm, I had the same reaction as Devlin, um, but probably for different reasons. And actually what this film has now kind of taught me is what I require of a film. Okay. Um, as a, as a viewer, it may very well be that I have, my threshold is like just above dum-dum, but I don't, <laughs> I can't work in abstract construction. Well, construction would mean that there was like some framework and that was the stuff that I was really struggling with. Devlin's talked about those barriers to entry. The subject matter, no issues with that whatsoever. I, I'm, if anything, I go to watch films to go and see things that I don't, I'm not subjected to. I'm not exposed to because that's something that I enjoy. Like for just basic inquisitive nature, so the subject matter wasn't an issue. My biggest issue was I could not get an in to any of the characters, and to call that for me to call them characters would be like strong because I just didn't get an emotional attachment to anything that I saw. And one of the questions that you posed in your notes, whether you, whether or not we found it to be erotic, I found it to be the least erotic film that I've seen, despite. Ooh all of the you know imagery and some of the and some of the acts and it, and the reason is and the whole week I've been trying to like process what it was that made me feel so cold towards this piece of art my sensibilities did not mesh well with Fassbinder's style and and for me I just could not break into like just basic stuff like the psychology of Corel like we just i know that it's on screen but all the stuff that's up front you said it in in prague you've you felt like you didn't want to get an answer wrong well i would have been like you which is the service level is really all i could detect because the subtext if it's metaphor then and this is not to sound like i'm being harsh it's probably just me but i found it to be a bit student filmy i was like well yeah i get it i get it everyone here is is reflecting something that they're not they're repressing their true identity i i'm not somebody who's ever had like uh, a a conflict with my sexual orientation so potentially that 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 stuff goes past me no i
3: mean you you've sort of broken the ice there a bit gally because i i was going to mention this idea that you know that that i hadn't ever had a conflict in terms of of my sexuality and in spite of having a lot of friends at film school who would have loved this film i i think i lacked that uh that layer that that would have perhaps made me uh, uh, engage with it more. Um, I, as far as some positive adjectives, I've got operatic, grand, sweeping, and emotive. But I've just written that it's very unclear. It was just very obtuse to me. And um, I think a lot of it's got to do with the idea of its musical-esque staging, the melodrama, the, sorry to say, soap opera, level acting at times uh and the the dubbing probably didn't help because this has happened a lot in i've watched a lot of giallo films recently and it really doesn't help that the if it is shot mute on sound and then and then dubbed later it can be very distancing or humorous here it just distanced me um i like the realism of cinema and and in, in spite of having a lot of praise for the the photography which i'd i'd like to talk about later because that's where where I can say some really positive things, I think. Uh, I struggled with all the embellishments because it felt theatrical. And, um, yeah. And the other note I made was, is there any fucking women in this film? And uh, someone put on Letterboxd uh, that it would not pass the Bechdel test. So that didn't help me <laughs> at, at all, really. And and I have to agree with Galley that the, the I couldn't really get with the protagonist. I couldn't really get in line with his
1: needs and desires but my driver there matt as well is that normally whenever i watch any film of course i'm watching a character that is not me so whatever Mm. their struggles whatever their strive the filmmaker will do something or should do something to to try and bring you along to so you can empathize or identify even if you've never had that lived experience so I'm, i'm trying to kind of um caveat it with i've never had um a conflict with my sexual orientation, right. but I've had conflicts with other stuff that's internal. It
3: just failed to engage you in that sense.
1: It really, yeah, that's it. And, and and this is where I was like, well, if it's going to be upfront, then maybe for me as an audience member, and this is just my opinion, then, then it was, it was never going to work for me because what I, Patrick, you said it uh, earlier, Fassbinder is not interested in the plot. I'm not normally interested in the plot. The plot is just a framework to tell a story but if you're not going to use that plot in any way to evoke drama or dramatic tension or emotion, then really what I'm watching is kind of like an abstract fantasy. And I just could not like navigate through that. Um, But I know that that's probably me and not everybody because um, I've got like a threshold. And like I say, the film has definitely taught me what I Need from a film, and what I need from a film is like a little bit of structure and a little bit of conventional storytelling. And this doesn't have any of that for me, but but again, more than happy to be challenged because that was just my perspective from watching it.
2: Probably my favorite part about it was the um was the theatricality and the heightened nature of it because I, I actually really like these uh um heavily staged uh the, the the set design was was quite incredible and it was so um cramped it had these like very realistic textures to it but the layout of it was so much a a literal stage set you could tell that it was extremely shallow and things happened on top of each other Uh, and so as the film opens out basically the locations just sort of slip into each other you know you you establish these locations as separate But when you zoom out, eventually people can watch one thing happening from another. And I really love that. And there are a couple of images that were really stark. The limited cast as well. I love a a kind of a very well-defined little ensemble where we just watch the conflict kind of build between this very small group of people. Um, I think what kind of honestly shut my brain down a bit the first time I saw it was just the pure density of the language it's so so dense at all times and it i mean i can understand why this would be a film that people if they get on on board with it would be sitting and would be able to sit and study it for for time on it uh, just to go through like a um so just to give like an example maybe to the audience who wouldn't be familiar with the with the the kind of language, I'm sure Galley will probably use some some clips to kind of uh to to get into just how how kind of ripe like ripe the dialogue is. But um there's a, a cop who sits in the bar, Mario, and he's dressed as a kind of, you know, literally like These village a, people cop. Yeah, yeah, it's a leather yeah. it's a leather kind of, you know, the leather bar. So cop, Germany back um, then,
4: they loved that leather clad homosexual yeah. attire and the, you can see it throughout the
2: whole film which uh later on i guess we'll um we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh I, I wanted to bring up paul schrader a little later and cruising because i think that there's a, a mm. interesting yeah, yeah. kind of historical uh but um so there's a moment where uh the so this is our like i said our narrator on top of our narrator uh, our lieutenant franco nero is is a layer of narration who's talking about Corel? but then we have a second narrator above that who's, who's telling us the story. And this is him describing how um, describing Mario the cop. And he says, uh, but what's strange is that he's doing so in the voice of Corel." So this is, a, it's that's why I mean, it's like, it, and because it's so constant, you, it really makes you work overtime to understand what any of this means but he says uh i noted his objective gestures objectivity is the companion of total power it holds sway over unchallengeable moral authority it's the perfect social organization which i upon reading it back and reflecting on it and maybe seeing what Fassbinder wants to say about um i would imagine he probably had quite an adversarial relationship with police and authority or at least a uh, a very um uh uh he went to the James Cameron School of Authority.
1: Yeah, and
3: I think uh,
2: if you were gonna if you were gonna yeah. be a, a you know a, a super intellectual, um, openly gay filmmaker in the nineteen seventies in Germany, I would imagine that there is probably a certain amount of like a, a very um, if not adversarial then complex relationship with power. So, reading that, that back, I, I found it more and more and more interesting. What I found really difficult was that that level of density was in almost every single line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I also liked how they uh, juxtaposed that with the extremely ripe and graphic and blunt language that comes later. That was an interesting contrast, I think.
3: I mean, the voiceover too is, is really compounds it, doesn't it? Because it's, it's dense already. And then the voiceover on top kind of... Um, uh, it, it doesn't help in terms of what Devlin's talking about, I don't think. Although being a very visual film, it was, felt very verbose well there's there's one
4: of my biggest problems with the film is the title cards and this garish white that springs up out of nowhere and it almost blinds you and i really don't like that because i'm i i am quite seduced by the aesthetic of this film i i think it looks incredible and the light is very moorish to me um on galley's point i did find it quite erotic I I think. I think that stems back to when I was 21 and watched it as well, that I was being opened up to something completely new to me. And it really opened my eyes and whether I was able to admit it at the time that I found this homoerotic film quite erotic and and appreciate the male form and everything. I I don't know, but that is a memory of mine that I did take things from it on a sexual uh, level. Um, you know, and I I grew up in a very conservative family from from means not not in a uh, regressional state they're they're very liberal but it was um I wasn't exposed to anything like this. You you're a Disney kid. And Come on,
0: Martha, you can Disney say kid. it. <laughs> <I> mean, it
4: <laughs> and even this week, I I, don't know, I can't deny it, it's sexuality, and I do find it. It's, for me, it's in the erotica section of our podcast because something, something about it—it's—it's it's unabashed. It's really kind of on on the sleeve and unashamed, and shots of crotches and looks, and the lighting is very suggestive. And I get all that, and it kind of impresses me. I think it does poke fun at the police. Like look, look at um, when they have the knife fight. You know, there's a mm. policeman in the background who
3: doesn't. Just sitting way, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're not very interested yeah. in the crimes, are they, the cops?
1: No, but, but <laughs> their their lack of interest in the crimes. I mean it was one of my big big examples, and you, you said like this is this is an erotic thriller. The the plot in the the subject matter, yes, this is a thriller really, as a story. You can say like, well, there are thriller elements uh, laden throughout it. Fastbender is not interested in, in exploring any of them
4: third-rate crime story he said
1: yeah he's not he's not interested in it that's fine but he's also not interested in using those surface level um plot beats to accentuate the things he is interested in so what do you think he's interested in i think um and and i know it was part of your notes i think this is almost like a, a kind of a real internal wish fulfillment exercise for him tackling his own his own issues. It's very simple to say, this is not a commercial film, was never meant to be kind of for a broad audience. That's fine. We're in art house cinema. So there are always going to be kind of passions and drivers that, that filmmakers want to explore and art is an exploration. You know, you can use it as a, as a vessel to explore those things that you're interested in. I think he gets so tied up in what interests him that he's forgotten or he, he had forgotten to engage and bring an audience along with him
4: it's allegorical for sure and very dense as we said that within this kind of there's a big idea that's a recurring theme through in it that is the absence of women it's the idea that you know men in prison they they have sex with each other whether that's non-consensual or consensual to to invent the 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 woman within because uh, there's an absence and it's man and men. And there's, there's the question of homosexuality in the film for me that is, are, are these characters gay or are they just so manly? And what is it to be a man and masculine that they can have sex with one another? And it, you know, it not affect their sexuality or or um, doesn't mean that they're gay, but it it's also kind of, fantastical this film and it's i i, I feel like the film it, there is a downfall in it that a downfall that's what i'm talking about carell's downfall throughout. He he's on this journey of self-discovery and it's it's every you know every man kills the thing he loves what why does carell betray jill why does uh carell kill Vic? What, what, and it's there's a religious aspect in the film. I find within it that uh, he, he's killing Vic to repent for his sins, and he's allowing Nono to fucking to repent for killing Vic, and it's all about discovery and figuring out who who he is. And I know the performance is quite stilted and doesn't really let you in that much, but I do get all of this within there.
2: There's a lot of discussion of just like basically saying like. Well, why not? Whenever he would be challenged on it, when he speaks to Mario, he's like, "Why did you, Why did you let no no fuck you?" it's like, "Why not? It felt good." And I think that there's um, those were the most interesting parts I, I I found in it was that we had such dense, really kind of probably overwritten literary flourishes, but then these blunt cutbacks to just you know, those were the moments I probably. Think that that's where the fastbender style of um of of uh, uh, performance passivity in performance is great stillness in performance is great. There's often though there's a tendency to have performances that are very muted or very low, like you know, keyed down um there's an expectation that there should be something dancing behind the eyes that's telling you a second or third thing that the character isn't telling you with their face straight away there are moments in this film where that does come through Jeanne moreau i think is able to project through her uh, her face a lot more than maybe the other characters others feel so passive that um that it doesn't the, that it doesn't quite strike in the same way the, the reason why the scene with Nono kind of was probably the only one that really um, uh, hit me kind of viscerally at the time of watching, I guess, is because that is the, the pair of them are not holding back on the physical performance of showing and the camera stays with you and it stays with you for an uncomfortable amount of time. It, it's It's one big wide shot with the caged bird in the corner. And then the camera flips to the other side, so that we're really like uh, Brad Davis's face is right into the lens, and I—that I, was one of the times when I found that the film had had kind of transcended the coldness that it kind of has, and and really hit. Yeah,
4: because it's explicit in in language and metaphor rather than visually. You know, you don't see a penis, or you don't—you shoot tight on faces and emotions and and grimaces and sweat, and it's very dirty
3: that way. Oh, just back to what Devlin was saying about sometimes when you have those stoic performances and there's that element where there isn't some I don't want to say there's nothing behind the eyes, that's an insult, but I'm trying to refer back to what Devlin was saying and he said it more eloquent than eloquently than me. But um I think one of the issues is that he is doing that intentionally and he's filling that space with a voiceover and he's filling it with Perhaps the title cards. Um so I think it's a choice. I think I don't think it's a mistake or an error of any kind. I think it's just a, a matter of his taste. That's and if I knew more about his filmography, perhaps I could contextualise it a bit better. But um it's just not something that I was used to seeing and not something I responded to. But I could see that it was intentional.
4: I think um I think it's born, Matt, that he's so faithful to the book that he brings in a lot of the words and paragraphs from the book that don't translate so well all the time because if they're a lot of it's in a monologue and in the book apparently a lot of it should stay in a monologue and it when it comes up i think nero does a really good job and it's a really good uh device to have him with a tape recorder and that that like sells it really well and and you understand that he is talking to himself and that works but not all of it does.
2: Um, the discovery yeah. of the tape recorder was, you know, was that was one of those um, seeding seeding something that 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 paid off in a more traditional sense of you know he's sitting in his in his office, he's watching Corel obsessively, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you watch you know when you see the tape recorder being put into a drawer and closed with Corel just outside the office. At some point, you realize that that's going to pay off. Um, yeah i i actually uh uh to to jump ahead towards the ending i guess um uh the kind of broken down exasperated brad davis i found much more compelling i think his his kind of final moments with uh with the I lieutenant yeah i i actually wrote that like kind of the entire thing because um there's stuff there that was. Uh, uh, um, I'm on the brink of a shame from which no man rises, but only in that shame will I find my everlasting peace. So I guess that's the each man destroys the thing he loves. You know, the, the self self destruction as uh, as self saving. I guess.
0: I'm on the brink of a shame from which no man ever rises, but only in that shame will I find my everlasting peace. I'm so weak. I've been conquered, totally conquered, and my thoughts are sad. I have feelings of autumn, soilings, fine mortal wounds in me.
4: you said about the set. It's built on a three hundred meter square. Berlin's soundstage that is all interconnecting. Uh, and that was a deliberate thing of his. He wanted a claustrophobia, the mirrors, the windows, the bars, we shoot through obscured things and um but with the orange, the constant orange hue and everything, is there did you look upon this film at all that he it's kind of a you know, the ship brings these sailors to hell or purgatory? or is Lefaria Purgatory, because they keep ending up back in there. They loop around and they end up in there again and they're challenged. And their human kind of, you know, Corel is challenged at the whole thing. He he allows himself to be sodomized, he murders, he betrays, and it's all, is it a test?
2: There's, uh, well, I mean, it, it's Eternal Sunset, we're always on the brink of night, but never making it there. Oh, um, which, you which is interesting. Uh, uh, Gilles' story is also uh, a fascinating one the the idea of constantly so Gilles is the uh, uh, uh i guess a mill worker in the town of some description we don't know what they do he wears a hard hat and he's forever flirting with a, a young man who looks quite a lot like ryan philippe a little um, yeah. yeah a bit james Deany. Had... he's got the got the
3: uh, the cheekbones
2: <laughs> yeah they use his sister uh, who has never appears on screen but is a, appears in explicit photographs but it's paulette, like they use yeah paulette the sister it's like they use the piglet as a conduit through which they can um <laughs> oh through which they can um uh uh embrace their attraction and their flirtation because they can use paulette as this like filter through which to kind of he'll constantly yeah. talk about how how much roger resembles paulette how much prettier he is at times how much prettier she is and um I guess you know, and then you've got the uh, uh, the the bearded the 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 scene in the cafe where uh, Gilles sings to Roger, and the whole song is this really kind of sappy, you know, uh, acoustic ballad, and the whole soundtrack is ruined by Theo, the big muscular bully, playing like some shit proto racing game. There's this is a horrible droning sound over the whole scene. Uh, uh I found his kind of. His his sequence of you know being put upon and put upon to the point that he snaps and murders him in the neck with a bottle was was one of the more interesting. See it, the I way think. he died
4: as well. Yeah, and, and there suppose, is a Christ-like you know.
3: uh, procession too, isn't there? There's a scene with a yeah. Hmm.
4: There's a there's a re- religious aspect within it, and, and lots um, lots of martyring
2: and suffering.
4: Yeah, at the end, Corell says to Sablon, "Is like let's fuck, and then I'll what is it." Lay between your thighs like christ or something it's 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 littered throughout and i i think that's a bit of anarchy and anti-religion as well
2: i can lie across your thighs now this i literally do not know what this word means i can lie across your thighs like a pietor cradling hmm. a dead jesus I, is yeah. that pietor is that like saint peter i don't know
1: maybe the danger is that there's so much packed into uh this two-hour yeah. Uh, yeah exploration of brest the city um that that yeah there's just there's too much uh, there's too much going on and maybe cuz he's so not interested in the mechanics of the plot that really it would have been better had it just been a, like a murder didn't need to happen um opium drugs smuggling all this kind of stuff that's going on um within this town you know Maybe that just didn't need to to happen whatsoever, um because you know you mentioned Patrick before about Fassbender's previous works, and this is why I think his previous works will probably be something that would be more akin to my sensibilities you know they're grounded in reality, they're grounded in mm-hmm. dealing with social and and cultural um relationships and and our you know our attitudes towards them. this, as you say, is more of a you know I'm sure all of his films were personal. This one feels deeply personal, deeply introspective. That there just there just wasn't, as I say, I keep going back to it. I just didn't have an avenue to navigate through the streets of of this film. Like I really could it's, not grab grab a hold of isn't it. Realist, is not it? Well, yeah. When a murder happens, normally, and again, this is, could just be that I have been conditioned through years of watching Western cinema uh, that that's a big deal normally um, and that normally will have some kind of consequence or something they were investigating that
4: was... it there were detectives <laughs> in long leather jackets and hats
1: and yeah yeah Scheffler they were <laughs> yeah. yeah they were but but you know the scene the scene after the murder has been committed by corral he has a sexual encounter with a policeman and mm-hmm. at no point is that policeman in any way interested in A murder that has happened in the town Mm. or that maybe corral might be a
3: suspect what if it's an amoral kind of you talked about the idea of purgatory there what if what if there's no good and no bad within this zone like dev says it never it never turns to night it's all it's in a a fantastical um zone that doesn't feel real and intentionally doesn't feel real so what if what if he's not making any moral judgments on anything that's why the police don't give a shit what's really going on and it's really is this gay fantasy when Corel kills Vic there's a really lovely lighting setup of a a
4: red light that slashes across Vic's neck and it's it's alluding to what he's about to do and what he wants to do and later on I think is it Sablon comes in to say to to identify the robber who is Gilles and there's a there's a slash of light on his neck there as well and we get into the psych of the police that they are corrupt and murderous and that's their intent there because i don't know they want an easy fix and it's great
2: on the deck of the ship as well when the the first detective comes to talk to the lieutenant about the murder that's another the the exact same light yeah it's a really intentional red line that goes right across his neck and uh because everything was so orange whenever they would use another color scheme it would really pop there was some really amazing um Shots of uh, using like a really pale blue as across contrast, the eyes, obviously blue and orange. Yeah, blue and orange is one of your big ones, but um there's some that created some really great kind of depth to these things. The um, yeah. the the sequence where uh, Gilles in disguise as Querelle's brother is hunting down the lieutenant, hunting him down over the course of the six meters that they have to work. Not with, a great disguise really either. Worked. But what's weird is that there are elements of it that pushed just a couple of degrees, like when they pull into the town the bar is surrounded by two gigantic stone turrets which are dick and balls now that is inherently very funny
4: they're called mooring shafts in real life shafts (laughs) these guys can't be lost on
2: no it's not lost on me that's that's the film school element (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, my my all-time favorite shot in the whole film is that there is a moment uh, uh, after Crell and Nono have had their first sexual encounter, Crell is on the boat. Somebody's talking to him and he's not listening to him because he's looking across <laughs> to the barrier. And oh, right yeah. between the two dicks is Nono standing in a vest with his hands <laughs> on his hips. And this is the kind of stuff where it's like, um, it doesn't surprise me that, like someone like like uh, like Jean Paul uh, Jean Paul Gaultier says that he basically took the aesthetic from all of his uh, uh, perfume stuff, literally from this. He he, mm. you know, the the boys in the sailor outfits and all of that highly theatrical lighting and all of the you know, the 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 muscular guys in the in their in their tight outfits. He took that f- from this, but Gaultier is obviously ramping it up to the element of camp, like. You know he's playing with the iconography in a humorous way, and I find that really interesting because this film is so serious, like so 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 serious. Um, and I I wonder whether I don't know I don't know whether um Gautier is obviously a very smart guy. Does you know Does he feel weird about repurposing something so kind of like transgressive and sad?
4: Fassbender's um he's very influenced by uh Pierre Agile's sailor photo or Tom Finland drawing and they were um special um Tom Finland's artwork of Georges Quantens was one of those specialities uh was campy kitsch homoerotic drawings of idealized sailors um just I'm showing the lens okay Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah
0: yeah and
4: you can see where it's all kind of born from and I think um again, I think it's masturbatory and indulgence in the aesthetic. We, yeah. we, we spoke about the policeman and you look at the builders. It's his kinks. Don't kink shame him. Yeah, I think there's that. I think this it's a paradise and it, it, it's a, a fantastical place where he could really invent and really I don't know, just be, be let loose almost. He never really did a film this Sur- surrealist. It was all like Ghani said, these other ones so are more realist and
3: well this was the section that that I felt like I could say something positive because it was um it was one of the only aspects of the film I feel like I could connect to and that was the the technically profesh- proficient stuff like you could see how clearly blocked and staged and rehearsed things were um in in order to efficiently uh and and the framing more than anything uh just to tell a story and um you know, it's got some soft focus, but it's got some good compositions and the stylized lighting. And, um you know, I didn't know the, necessarily the meaning of the blue across the eyes. Is there any readings on, on that? That was a recurring thing.
4: I read it as truth. It's when they realize truth. And um, right. I, I, that's how I read it. But then blue also, you know, there's a really nice shot of when Carell's on the, the walkway and he's con- uh, conquered the, yeah. the light face to more blue on him and he... Is that his finding his truth within himself? That yeah, he, yeah,
1: maybe Patrick, is, yeah. is
4: is destroyed there, uh, and I'm not. I don't want that to be uh, misjudged. That now that he has realised that he's become homosexual with his love for Jill, mm-hmm. and then Sablon, I, I don't mean it in that. I mean that he has he's affected his whole life by making bad decisions elsewhere. Um, so I, I saw that as truth, but I haven't read into it, Matt. I haven't read anywhere that it
3: says that. It feels unapologetic. Is that because he was? I mean, uh, he, he he was nearing the end of his life, or even if he he didn't know it, he seemed to me like he was sort of hitting a self-destruct in a way. But he was also, this was his clearest expression of of himself to...
4: well funny enough that the, the final title card which is the guy I played roger gave him the print of the letter you know at the very end and it's
2: um it just says the date of birth uh mother's name no father listed and then it's like this is all this is all we'll know oh it's a uh, uh date of death is not even known and i guess that's because I, it sounded like the jean genet was still alive when this came out is that right
4: but he 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 said, "I don't want to narrate it because the book's behind me." Yeah, right, I'm, no. I'm sure Fassbender will understand, is what he said.
2: It says, "Apart f- apart from his books, we know nothing about him." Jean Genet, that's what it says.
4: And yeah. isn't it a bit like Monroe in um, uh, the Misfits? You know, that mm. almost a pathetic fallacy that he he died two months after the film was completed. And yeah, he mm. did complete it, Gally. This is his film.
2: Well, that's good to state then that it's not a compromised work. But th- that's an interesting one in in terms of like you know apart from his books, we know nothing about him, Jean Genet. And we've just spoken about a filmmaker who basically spent his entire adult life just creating works incessantly one after another five, six films a year. Um, And, you know, not even 40 years old. And it seems like all he's ever done is, is, is generate this, you know, this work. And maybe that's why he found him such a kindred spirit. Maybe there's this idea, you know, he is the work, and the work is his life, and anarchy that bring them together.
1: Question here: How is this movie seen now within, and I'm, and in particular, I'm interested in within the gay community. Is this film like highly regarded or seen as a as an important text?
4: At the time, it was damned in San Francisco. You know, they're all very scared of this new disease that was going around called AIDS, and it didn't really like that this was uh so explicit and frivolous in its display of gay sex but now it's um it's a mixed bag really critically i think i said that earlier but it is look at jean paul Gaultier's influence it's a very influential film aesthetically and for um eroticism and it is it is well received now in the gay community it's um, an important piece of gay literature
1: I'm just interested to know because, uh, partly because it's, you know, it's all about like uh, learning and educating oneself, and because I couldn't get into it, uh, mm. and but it sounds like you you could, Patrick. It's been fascinating to yeah, hear your perspective on it and your readings. I guess um, there's there's a part of me that's like I don't want to just leave this one at the door. Like maybe maybe I need to find another way in. And yeah. as, as as Matt said about the the purgatory or the the man destroying the thing that they love maybe yeah. that's the the prism with which to view this this text a, a bit
3: wider than that it made me think about quote unquote queer cinema i think that is the accepted mm-hmm. um <laughs> thing that i can oh, say yes but,
4: i think sorry i said gay
3: cinema so. well it's reclaimed isn't it I, I, apparently but uh, the you know it made me think about my beautiful laundrette which i've still never seen but it's been on my watch mm-hmm. list for i don't know how long and it made me think of other films that it it should really open my mind to because it, it's I'm not I'm, I'm so far from being an authority on it in terms of how how the gay community accept it or reject it. There's a little bit in critics' corner which uh, I went into the the, the basement of of letterbox to uh, to trawl through some of the responses there because I couldn't really see too many highbrow reviews. But we can get to that when we get to to critics.
4: Just some. Um on the film's kind of inaccessibility and, and kind of reading just a quick note on how did you read the ending mm. and i know matt that it puzzled me about, yeah it yeah. puzzled me <laughs> i like that puzzled yeah in the story i put it in story time and the the plot device is that it's not in the book this either this is faster than mm-hmm. his invention that uh Lysiane would read tarot cards for robert and pronounce you've got a brother and he's in danger and of what? Of finding himself or something. And At the end of the film, she read them again and said, Robert, I was wrong. You don't have a brother. <laughs> um, hmm. It's a hard thing to read that. And when you asked it, I was like, damn, I knew someone was going to ask and I'm not prepared for this. But I I feel it's either as simple as Fastman that is fucking with the audience, which wouldn't surprise me, or to give it meaning for the film and the characters, because I think Moreau's is actually pretty good in this. Is it Lizanne saving face as the only woman here and fucking with the men and in denying one's existence is making her relationship with Robert more acceptable to herself
2: and she's not so embarrassed? The ending was one of those aspects where I thought that, again, a, a tiny push in one direction and you get to it being kind of funny and in a way that mm. I didn't really understand but I, there must have been because almost immediately after there is a shot of the ship and it takes you a while to realize that it's running backwards
4: it's almost the exact same as the opening shot of the ship as well.
2: yeah when they're, when they're sorting out the ropes you can only tell because like they're just looking a bit odd and the smoke is going the wrong way out of the little chimney um, so it's like the film kind of undoes itself mm. now this idea of like the film is going to now repeat they're going to back out of short yeah and then and then we're going to loop back and we're going to come back into short and we're going to do all this again purgatory yeah Hmm. um but that's which is a bleak kind of look on human existence
4: isn't it that you're just gonna hmm. you're stuck in a loop of making the same mistakes and just unhappiness
3: it did feel to me like i was clinging from a cock turret and I just needed something to help me, like help me at the very end, like wow them in the end. But instead yeah. he sort you know, of pried, wanna... pried my fingers off the yeah, uh, yeah. Off, off the brick dick and I fell into the sea and, and that was, that was Bounce, the end. For me. Bouncing
2: off the balls on your way down.
1: Titanic style spinning into the <laughs> <laughs> All aboard, Critics' Corners. We are off to Purgatory to find out exactly what they had to say the the criterion channel
3: who are are currently streaming it um just their blurb was interesting Rainer Werner fassbinder's final film is a deliriously stylized tale of hothouse lust and simmering violence completed just before fassbinder's sudden death at age 37 Uh, the director's pushing his embrace of artifice and taboo shattering depictions of queer desire to new extremes uh i couldn't really find too many highbrow reviews our usual go-tos were not not there so i went into the basement at uh, letterboxd and uh and read read some uh ordinary people reviews and i wasn't disappointed and my favorite came from a person called han and it simply said cock uh he gave it
0: (laughs) five stars so i assume
3: he liked it um But a a lot of the others were lost in a sea of pretension and words that I had to Google, like jouissance, uh, which means pleasure, delight and ecstasy.
1: I also went down that road, Matt, and the pretension was... Off the scale. Unbearable. Yeah. I mean, it was almost as if they had watched The Flower That Drank the Moon.
3: Again, uh, appropriately, some of them border on, like, satire, because they're so, they're so stupidly pretentious, but th- there's this guy, Porker O'Rourke. He enjoyed the middle, anal, in brackets, section. Uh, he said it was <laughs> <laughs> homoerotic bliss. In short, pretty gay, and I liked it. That there was someone who seemed to be clued up, uh, much more so than me, and I think he was called Dee Dee Bird. Um. He said, uh, "What shout is shout out to Didi Bed? Shout out to him." Well, let's listen to the review before we do it. But he uh, he said, uh, "I retract what, my shout out." <laughs> what is one to make of Fassbinder's final film? A surrealistic, intentionally stilted, stagey interpretation of the heretofore inimitable Jean Genet. High art or tongue in cheek camp? A philosophical treatise? on self-loathing and sexual identity or a trashy softcore gay wank fest possibly all of the above but probably mm-hmm. none of them the circian hyper artificial lighting and dramatic staging of these rough and tumble sailors down at the docks are insufficient to lift this dud out of the muck the saddest joke is that it is far more genuinely campy than Fassbinder seems to have intended that seemed to sum up some things that were un, under the surface with me, but not knowing enough about the mm-hmm. filmmaker, um, I, I, I felt like that had some authenticity to it. But who knows? Shout out to D. D. Bird. Well done.
2: I'll reinstate, reinstate the shout out. That was actually um, yeah. uh, uh, that I think like you were saying that's probably articulated a lot of maybe what was floating around in my head a little better than I could yeah, myself yeah. so I'm gonna steal it a little bit colourful on the language <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. steal it and pretend <laughs> steal uh, it and pretend it's my own opinion well that's
3: what Critics Corner is I just steal people's you know more eloquent uh, reviews oh, Quiz, hot shot. I want you to roll, roll the dice with me and play a game um, <laughs> what's your <laughs> what's your buzzer Matt
0: big Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Devlin what's your buzzer? Da da da, da da da. da. <laughs> Very good. Gally what's your buzzer? My love makes me softer.
1: Uh,
4: just a reminder: Matt's on five points, Devlin's on four, Gally's on one. Let's see how Gally does here with question one. What's the name of the brothel? Da da da, da
0: da da. Dublin, <laughs>
2: Bavaria.
4: It is Leferium, that's correct One point to Devlin Question two What's the name of the ship? Big no-no Matt
3: La Ventura oh. La... Uh, awesome
4: <laughs> So
2: her.
3: close Does anyone else have a go? If not, I might
4: give Matt Hall.
0: Da-da-da Da-da-da-da
2: Jessington World of La Ventura <laughs> 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 right. Is that your pub quiz name?
1: That's very good Galley.
2: My love makes me softer. Mr. Hooper, that's
1: the USS <laughs> Indian. <indeed. laughs> <laughs> it's Lavanche.
3: La ah. Uh,
4: question three, final question. What does Sablon write in his graffiti?
0: Da da da. Da 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 da.
2: Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna see if I can get this verbatim. I doubt I can though. Young man wants big cocks?
3: I'm gonna give you it.
4: But it is Young Man Needs Boys with Big Cogs.
2: Ah,
0: <laughs>
1: key bit of information there. I'm missing. I want that half. That's Devlin. Devlin wins
4: two to half a point.
1: Well, well done, done well, Thanks for
4: playing. Thanks for rolling
1: the dice. Okie dokie. Well, that leads me to ask for our final thoughts and our recommendations. I'll start with you, Patrick, as it was your choice. Final thoughts on Corral, and would you recommend it to our listeners, if they're still with us?
4: Oh God! I hope they're still with this. Um, thank you. I know it was a more difficult pick than I thought uh, at the time, um, but I wanted to do something quite adult and serious, and I think I met that brief. I I am going to recommend it because I brought it to your attention, and it's it it is as a film that has always stayed with me. That's fifteen years now, and i whether it was just through pure imagery, which I think it was the first time I saw twenty one 'cause there was a lot more that shocked me this time that i would forgotten about in in the in the context of the film and and the the character's actions, but it's yeah it's all so with me it looks great, I really like the staging and the theatricality of it the the knife dance the the deliberate um, moves uh deliberate actions the deliberate stage directions of the actors the way it's shot. Um, I like the kind of obscurity of looking through a mirror at, at other people and not really talking face to face. I think there's a lot in there, and I think the film is full of allegory and metaphor. it's fantastical and weird and wonderful and I find it erotic, I really do um I see why it's quite a sexy film it, it That's not to say that that that's all my car wax because i I hate the the screen turning to white and giving me text. I really really jarred me, and I really didn't like that at all. I found it horrible actually um I do wish for a bit more of an emotive performance, especially from Davis, it's it it does keep your arm's length and it is quite, some of it's quite unreadable and uh too deep and too dense I think from all the things i said to you, oh, Gally could be right there might be too much going on for me that I've latched on to so many different things that might be conflicting my my reading of it as well I watched this fascinating documentary that came with a Blu-ray called The Twilight of Bodies Husband Been to Such a Corral and Claude Anard, it was a writer, and he was endlessly praising it. And he was kind of that pretentious, pr- pretentious letterbox writer that really went into it. And I, he was praising Brad Day's his performance, and I didn't, I don't agree with that. I, I don't. I think Fastinda misused him in, in a way for a lot of some of the, the, the parts of characterization in his arc. But that's. Am I from a commercial sense that I needed more? I, I don't know. But then um, Laurent Mallet, who plays Roger, he he was in the documentary as well, and he had some fascinating little insights to the behind the scenes of uh, Fassbinder and working with him. And my, um <laughs> for example, he he showed he, he said that um, Moreau played Virgin Mary in the crucifixion sequence, which I completely missed. And if really? you look closely, she's holding on to Christ it's and leading. Fleeting, leaving isn't it? I
3: didn't notice.
4: So, and it's like. And it's, you know, they just get on with it with the fight going on around them. It's really interesting. And that, that might be my favourite scene, the sword fight, because it's a real visual thing with no dialogue and there's not that heavy dialogue to listen to and it, it, it's really quite interesting. Um, uh, yeah, like. Yeah, I, I recommend it. And I'm very eager to hear if any of you will. So next I'll go to Nat,
3: please. So, uh, in terms of our erotic bingo board masturbation, lingerie, murder, gay voyeurism, I think we got a line, so I think it qualifies Wait. Um, having made a few films, particularly at film school that were set based where we had to stage things and block them and think about lenses and focal depths and camera movement and operating camera, these were the things that really hooked me in because i I know how difficult it is to get them right and the and the precision involved, so I found. This extremely admirable in that sense. The best shot is a focus pull to a hairy sack and a shaft. Uh, (laughs) I'm joking. I'm just checking who's still listening. Um, I actually do have one very specific, uh, favorite shot, which was, uh, (laughs) very technically accomplished. It's, it's when, um, did you say lieutenant? It's not the captain, is it? It's the lieutenant. He's been questioned Mm. by the kind of Gestapo cops. And the camera's just going round and round 360 with Corel central in the frame. Uh, I noticed that as a particularly good shot and, uh, all the mirror wanking stuff, uh, which, which was mimicked later specifically, like to, to the composition is exactly the same later on with Robert and, uh, uh, it's it, it echoed with Corel. A, a big problem happened about an hour in, which was a dead giveaway for me where I started looking at the characters and, and just sort of trying to think who they looked like. Uh, so I was so distanced from the film at that point. I was like, "Oh, the, the head cop looks a bit like John Kreese from from Karate Kid." <laughs> yeah. uh, so that, that made me laugh for a long time. And I, I thought, like, uh, Corell looked a bit like the lead singer from uh, from Future Islands. You know when he dances on on David Letterman. Show. Oh
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> and
3: and finally, I thought, no, no, looked a bit like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, he does
4: he's the one i went with his
3: (laughs) (laughs) if we perhaps combine him with the film critic elvis mitchell do you know that guy he was kind of a a a love child of the two of them that's
1: a great pull great um
3: but i I think i failed to find the meaning I, i i do think it probably is like thematically each man kills the the thing he loves but there was a distance between between me and and the story um and the character's I think any time all morals go out the window, um, I'm, I'm not talking in, in terms of the sexuality. It's really the murder and the and the the the, the smuggling plot and everything. There, there there wasn't really anyone to latch onto in, in a likable sense. And I I do fall into Gally's camp of um, you know I think we like more com- commercial fare, and there are things that we expect from films, and when we don't get them, we we get a bit frustrated. I think so. I I can't recommend Corel. I think most, most people will switch it off. Um, I think that there's a very specific kind of person who's gonna, gonna latch onto this film and, uh, and see the depths of it. And I don't think I had the patience to, to do it. And that the only reason I stuck with it and looked at it in, in any depth is because I, I, Patrick had picked it and I wanted to give it, give it its due. And, um, so I can't say I enjoyed it, but I won't forget it, Patrick. And in, in, in a way, I think that's a compliment of, of some kind.
2: But I wish I had some opium. I think that would have helped me. I'll pass over. Devlin. This one came along at a really interesting time because um, I finally got around to watching Paul Schrader's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, a film that I have been meaning to see for fucking years. And I finally got around to watching this thing. And it was odd how many parallels there were that I could find. It was a good like hook for me to be able to kind of mm. catch on to what this film was saying quite quickly uh Mishima being a writer who um was uh a gay or I mean he was married so his sexuality is 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 a large part of his mythology um he's an extremely prolific writer um he's this weird contradiction in terms uh, uh he's a fierce nationalist almost kind of a fascist he's a, an obsession with physical beauty and perfection there's a lot of really interesting stuff in Mishima and also um the film is structured in such a way that it slips um between the life of the real historical Mishima and characters that he created in his plays and novels and sometimes uh, uh parts of his life are acted out by his characters on these very theatrical stage sets and everything's very heightened and it flicks between the real and the unreal. And the only reason I mention it is that I found that so compellingly strange and because the, that film slipped between those two realms so much um, uh, and and gave us a, a, an unusual grasp of the truth and also um, had more traditional acting performances to latch onto, um, it, I really wish I loved this one more than I did. It, there's so much to it that is exactly in my wheelhouse of, of filmmaking, like, um, the idea of, of 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 playing on this um abstract stage and and being able to explore things in a way that does unmoor it from the boring kind of uh, parts of reality. Only keep what you want from reality, which would be kind of incredible. Unfortunately, it just the first viewing especially was so much. It was just, it was that it's so much. And I don't mean in terms of like the the graphic nature of it, I would have preferred it to be more heated, more fucked Mm. up. I would prefer more passion to it. It's the, um, and probably this is entirely intentional. It sounds like it is because if there's one thing that it did do is that it has, I wrote fucking seven pages of just rambling <laughs> during the preparation for this episode, I guess, because I found it kind of uh, intimidating. I found it intimidatingly yeah. dense. I found it intimidatingly an <clears throat> intellectual. Um, I love the juxtaposition between the high, the high kind of, you know, the high minded literary wording. And then you, a couple of sentences later, you're down into this like extraordinarily blunt and graphic language. But, um, as a viewing experience, it was it was a tough, tough, tough watch. Like borderline headache-inducing in terms of its uh, uh, just overwhelming amount of information. Maybe uh, what what would have helped would be to there are certain films which probably need to come with like a little essay booklet or like a Q and A session or somebody to kind of guide you through it. I almost felt like I needed a hand holding on this one after watching it thought, I don't think this is for me. And I don't think I want to watch any more of this stuff. What's been really interesting is getting to talk about it and like bringing up all of this stuff has made me now think uh, it's, uh, that would be very dismissive just because something is difficult. doesn't mean, it's not worth the effort, but uh, it would be a while before I, I would really feel like I'd need to take a run up at this one. But from that, I would say that, I mean, you know, it, it's difficult for me to not recommend a film on these on these podcasts, just largely because I feel like everyone should kind of seek out as many things as they can and as many experiences as they can. And a difficult arthouse film can either hit you or it doesn't. And I think that when it does, it probably hits you in a much more profound way than a film that's probably, uh, you know, intended for a wider audience, because you can feel like it really is keying in on something that that's unique to you as opposed to a, a large group. So I don't know. Uh, call it the, the strangest, most tentative um, recommendation I've ever given in that I actually found it extraordinarily hard to watch, but I also want to inflict that on other people. So, yes, please come and watch it. Um, how about you, um, Gally? I've got really much more to add
1: apart from just qualifying where I sit, which is that I don't require a film to entertain but I do require a film to engage and I just could not engage with it. So um, the fact that it's art house, that it's highbrow, that it's dance, um, you know, I'm not, I, I get what you're saying about the intimidation because it, it does feel like an academic piece of work that you need to, um, you know, really give yourself over to. But in my attempts to do that, I just didn't have a hook. Um, and maybe that's because... My educational tier is at bachelor of arts level, and I <laughs> and, uh, therefore I should not study masters. Yeah, I've been I've been nurtured on conventional uh, storytelling and conventional filmmaking kind of tropes, and that's you know that's me. That's not everyone. But what that does mean though is that uh, I cannot recommend this. If it's taught me anything, it's taught me that actually there are certain bare minimum things that I need. In order to stay with uh, a film, uh, and and so that's you know that's a positive. But as a recommendation, um, nah, no, I can't recommend this at all. But a, a enjoyable discussion nonetheless. And I would be interested as well to know um, going forward whether or not the the target audience, if if indeed that is the target audience, um, but the queer community would absolutely like. I'd love to hear their perspectives on it because it would be interesting.
4: I'm doing well with my picks, aren't I?
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 you're doing well. You're doing well. In um, one day, just, just pick fucking Dante's pick, for Christ's sake. <laughs> anyway, I'm only jesting. Right, um, Matt, where can our audience, because we've done such a good job uh, yeah. of, of making sure that they're like chomping at the bit, uh, where can our audience find Corral?
3: If you're in the USA, the Criterion Channel and HBO Max are currently streaming it. If you're in the UK, the BFI Player, Curzon and Mubi are all streaming. And I believe that's through Amazon Prime.
2: Yeah, you, uh, um, if you want to get a movie, I recommend getting it through Prime Video because Mubi has a website only offers you the 31 hand-selected films of the month, whereas the uh, Amazon Channel has upwards of, I think, 800 titles at the moment, which is kind of ridiculous.
3: And if you're in South Korea, you are shit out of luck because it is not showing any (laughs) capacity anywhere.
1: Right. Devlin, interesting to see what T-shirt comes out of this one. Um, Do you want to uh, let our listeners know where they can buy things if they want to support the show and give (laughs) us like... Someone bought a Jet sticker last night, I noticed. They did. 16 pence
2: our way. Thank you very much.
4: um, There's some good Corel posters, Dev.
2: There are. There's some wonderful Corel posters yeah no i um uh uh, uh i'm i we may put one together who knows but uh, i would like Neil degrasse
1: ties <laughs> just his face with <laughs> just to see if he came at us i don't know okay <laughs> something.
2: um if you want to head to rewind com, that is our website everything's there all the episode links all the old episodes are archived um there's a tab called shop that'll take you to dot dot com. that's where I keep a lot of t-shirts it's also the home of the Rewind Movie Podcast merchandise shop the good one uh, where we have t-shirts and branded stuff and stickers and all sorts of fun times. Uh, there's also a Redbubble shop. We've had to shift a couple of things over there because I've been shut down for copyright <laughs> infringement on T-Mill <laughs> so if you want a t-shirt from the Terminator that says fuck you asshole or anything with jet from Gladiators on it Click on the red bubble icon.
1: If you enjoy what we do, then please like, share, subscribe, pen as a wee review. That's all we ask. You can see that we, you know, I was going to go down the quality street route of uh, of kind of selections of chocolates.
2: <laughs> but You and your chocolate boxes. Absolute maniac. Just go buy a bounty. Just eat something before you do the podcast. <laughs> Come on here, hungry. Unbelievable.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just trying to say that there's variety here. Okay. We, you know We don't just do one thing. We do lots of things. Whether we do them well, that's your decision. Hence, like, share, subscribe, pen a we review. We really appreciate it. And that is that. We do have a throwback coming up, and it's Matt's. So Matt, fascinated to hear, you know, from, from the city of Brest. Where are we going next?
3: Well, it's a podcast pick almost beyond comprehension. A film notoriously and frustratingly unavailable to my generation as kids and Ooh. teens what an excellent day for an exorcism we are going to excavate director william friedkin's original 1973 possession picture and officially the scariest movie ever made because the dvd box says so the exorcist what a good
1: pick you know when i uh, when we said we were going to be an adult podcast we'll do some adult things you know maybe maybe spread our wings a little bit further out Okay. That's a big episode. I assume you've qualified your talking points with uh, Mark Kermode because it's like a thing now you have to do if you're a UK podcaster and you're going to discuss The Exorcist.
3: I'm actually reading his book and it's terrific. So I've got some... I think uh, I've
1: got that. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's excellent.
1: Okay. All original thoughts though, inbound on this episode. Of course. Coming up.
3: There are so many sources and that that's why, you know, th- th- we'll be doing it in about a month. So... um, listeners if you can get hold of the theatrical version underlined sandwiches already that would really help but um there's a lot to discuss in the version you've never seen so we can uh we'll see you in about a month for a demonic chin wag
1: and in between a little palate cleanser adrian brody's predators so there you go we just keep uh <laughs> honestly you've got to keep you've got to stay on your toes Adrian Brody, didn't
3: well he's jack he's wow. so jacked up he may as well have.
1: right well we will say our goodbyes before we do patrick thank you very much an unusual mm. pick, uh, as thank I say, Patrick. something something that I would never have uh, discovered, partly down to the fact that I'm 37, I'd never heard of it. So, um, you know, there's something. Um, but yes, no, thank you very much for Corel. Next up is Predators. Then it will be The Exorcist. So if you want to get your homework in now, listeners, then do that. Um, and yeah, we'll say a goodbye then, shall we, too? Unmooring myself from reality and back... <laughs> into some form of normality is this podcaster. It's Gally in Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone.
2: Do you ever run his hands over your penis? It's Devlin in London.
4: We have a solid,
3: massive,
0: heavy crick.
3: It's Patrick in London. (laughs) You're a cute chicken. It's Matt in South Korea.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.